in particular this topic of the underserved or the disenfranchised, which I had to look up. I sort of knew what it meant, um, but I didn't realize it was an actual legal term, meaning that your legal rights had been taken away. Uh, and so we're talking about people who legally uh, are, are underprivileged, uh, financially they're underprivileged, whatever has gotten them into a situation where they're underprivileged. Uh, those are the kinds of people I'd like to talk about today. And I, I want to talk about them for a couple of reasons. One is because I think they're important to God's heart. Um, and that's the most important reason. The other is that they're not so far away from us. Sometimes we think, where do I have to go to find these underprivileged people? And sometimes we ourselves are those underprivileged people, and we need to be able to say that, yes, in the church, I am accepted. In the church, in God's kingdom, I am important. And so um, one of the things I do in Kenya as a family medicine doctor is I'm running a, a family medicine program for Kenyan uh, doctors. Uh, you know, the idea is that I can only see so many people, but if I can train people to see them, then I'm going to get that much more health care out there. And if I can disciple those young women, men and women, I can get that much more ministry being done throughout Kenya. And when you look at Kenya, in particular in the medical situation, um, you know, first of all, 50% of the people that graduate from medical school never practice medicine in Kenya. A bunch of them leave the country altogether and practice somewhere else. A bunch of them never do medicine at all. They're, they're young women who then go on to be moms, uh, or for whatever reason, they could not find a job. Those who do find a job, initially they are placed by the government, for the most part, in rural areas throughout uh, the country. They do a five-year medical training, and then they have a one-year internship, and then they're shoved out into the, into the wilderness to go practice. And so uh, they come back to us after a couple of years and want more training because they can't really get to what they need for their, for their people. But once they come back from those rural areas, it is very rare that they go back to those rural areas. Just like this group that leaves the country and almost never comes back to Kenya, the group that's even within Kenya almost never goes back to the rural areas. And so you have 80% of the population that's not being taken care of um, by doctors. They're being taken care of by lower levels of staff, nurses and uh, what they call clinical officers, which is some bridge between uh, nursing and medical. And so, um, so there's a lot of under-reached areas medically. It's also a lot of underreached areas uh, for many other resources as well. And to me, as, as I um, look at this residency program, I've thought many times, what is it that we can do to keep people out in those rural areas? And I went over it and went over it with, uh, with my colleagues. We've been starting a new residency with a new Christian university uh, such that we'll be able to actually, from the ground up, have a biblical model and discipleship right from the get-go. In the public university, that was more difficult, a little bit more like uh, the situation here. Um, but when I thought about this challenge, I thought, you know, we don't have the finances to keep them out there. Clearly, they would want hazard pay. Um, and we don't have really, you know, excellent facilities out there. In fact, most of the time, they don't have even water in their hospitals. I have one hospital that... Uh, one of our graduates went to, he was the medical superintendent, and, and it was a close by hospital to us. And they would, every Friday they would send us people from their hospital to our hospital. Why do you send these people, I said to 
Dr. Akiruga asked me, he was the medical superintendent. He said, it's because I don't have water, and my ambulance doesn't run over the weekend, so these people can't get what they need through, through the weekend. Not to mention, my doctors don't show up on the weekends either. So between those two things, we thought we should get them to a hospital where they're getting taken care of. Uh, and this is the situation that happens not infrequently in the government hospitals. I say this because at the end of that conversation, we all came to the same conclusion. The only thing that will keep people serving in a place that is difficult is faith in God, is their trust in Jesus Christ and their call on their lives to be there. It will not be the finances, it will not be the excellent facilities, it will not be the great resources or opportunities, it will be their faith. And so we are very excited to be starting, even now, our first residents are coming in, um, and so getting started with that, the point of getting to the people that need the most where they are. And that's what I want to talk about this morning is, how do we get to the people who need it the most where they are? I want to start with a story um, that's fairly familiar from Genesis. <coughs> Genesis chapter 16. I'm going to read the first few verses. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for ten years, Sarai took his wife, her Egyptian, his wife, her Egyptian handmaid Hagar, and gave her to the husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. When Sarai mistreated Hagar, then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring beside the road in Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, why, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she said. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. <clears throat> the angel added, so I will increase your descendants so that they are too numerous to be counted. I'm skipping over a small section to verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, now I have been seen by the one who sees me. That is why this place is called Beer Lahaj Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the son the name Ishmael she had born. Hagar was 86 years old when, sorry, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So long before this, there was a covenant between Abram 
and God. And Abram was promised that his descendants would be multiplied more than the stars in the sky, more than the sand in the sea. And so what happened in this story? Well, we have two people uh, who are waiting for a son, one of whom <coughs> gets a little impatient and says, well, just go with her and have a son. I'll let her be your wife as well, and I'll take the son. And that's Sarah, Sarai at that time. And Abram consents, but something goes terribly wrong with the story. And Hagar gets mistreated, probably beaten, if nothing else, outcast, such that she is no longer in the house of a rich man and his wife as a servant, which she already was, right? She didn't really have as many rights as Sarah and Hagar, yes, Sarah and Abram to begin with. She already started her, her day as a servant, and then she was cast out from there. So I look at this story, and we have Abram and Sarai, rich landowners with many servants, many cattle, who have a promise from God. I see how, as humans, we sometimes execute things uh, that do not please God, and bad things come of those. Um, and then I see this woman, Hagar, who has been kind of moved around by everybody but herself. <clears throat> she finally finds herself in the desert with a newborn. And God asks her, where have you come from? Where are you going? What is this place that you're in? What did you think you were going to get yourself into in the desert? Right? And so... But God meets her there. At the very place she needs to meet God, she meets him there. And what is he, what is the name she gives to him? The name is, he's seen me. And this is where I think our journey begins when it comes to breaking out of the mold of being confined by what this culture uh, at this time says. Survival of the fittest. If you can just get ahead, you can be ahead. <clears throat> Don't worry about how many people you have to kind of push behind to get you up that ladder. Just get there, and you will be fine. That is not the kind of vision that would ever have even found Hagar. They wouldn't have even known that Hagar existed. And so my first question to you this morning, I want you to spend just a couple of minutes. I don't actually know what the time is. Oh, there just a couple of minutes, talking amongst yourselves about how or in what way do I interact with the poor, the underprivileged, the disenfranchised? So just take a couple of minutes around your tables, and then we'll hear some answers after that. I'll give you maybe three minutes to talk about how do you, in your life, interact with the poor? Your groups, maybe if just one person in this group can share something about what your group discussed. And again, what I asked was, how do you interact 
with the underprivileged, the disenfranchised, the poor? Any group want to go? Jay wants to. Thrown <laughs> 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 under the bus early. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, a lot of us, uh, you know, really serve indirectly. You know, uh, there, there's not a lot of direct contact with the poor. And you know, we also brought up the question: is really around here, who are the poor? You know, are the people in Lawrence really poor when you compare them to, say, Africa or Juarez, you know, Juarez or, or all of that? And that's a good question: are they really poor? No, it's just poorer than us. Well, poorer than us, right? That's what Jesus did, and that's why the Pharisees hated him so much. What was the first part? Loving them where they're at. Loving them where they're at. Okay. Okay. Any examples at your table as to how that happens in real life? Yeah. I just say, I worked with a couple women that were lesbians back in many years ago. They hated Christians and they hated men. And the one, uh, one was more... You know, spiteful than the other one, but she was gone, and the other one asked me, I can't understand you. Why are you like this? You know, you're freaking out. And I said, Well, I gave her an example. I said, uh, Billy Graham was asked a question. Again, the, the words that I looked up biblically, you know, just kind of going through a concordance, to, to try to figure out what does the Bible have to say, were, were, were poor and oppressed. Those seem to come the closest to disenfranchised and under-resourced. Um, under um, and so, who are those people? You can just call it up from where you are. Who are those people? Who are what? Who, who, who are the poor, disenfranchised, underserved, whatever you want to call them? Who are those? Because we kind of know who the people, we know what the concept is, and we probably have in our minds who those people are. But I want to just see if there's some people that maybe we wouldn't have put in that category. They're not us. So, uh, I, I always think of this like I can't, uh, my knowledge is limited. Um, I can't judge someone else in their position. Because people who are, uh, need assistance. And, uh, How about the unemployed? Unemployed is a good, care, a good group. How about we could be any one of them? It's true. You know, the, 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 when David was king and sort of dealing with his sin, he said, I am poor and needy. He identified himself as understanding that before God, maybe not before his fellow people, but before God, he was poor and needy. And that's essentially what we're talking about, people who are poor and needy. Frank? Yeah, but you're talking about from a material point. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what we're going to need to talk about from the spiritual and other side. I mean, because um, Fred was talking about serving at Lazarus. Absolutely right. The you know in scripture it says that the poor are rich in faith, and so they have something to offer us. Oftentimes, in fact, even in our conversations, just briefly here, we've talked about going and serving, doing something for another person, and yet really nobody in life 
ourselves included, want to be seen as somebody that somebody has to do something for. Nobody wants to be a project. I'm not the guy, you know, I'm not the guy that somebody comes and serves. I'm another human being and see me for who I am. See me where I am with my faults and my good parts. Uh, and so I think trying to at least, even if we've never had the experience, and there's going to be many times you're ministering in your life that you've never had the experience that that person had. We were just talking about some prison ministry. Who of us has killed someone, right? Who of us has maybe done some of these major crimes? We will never have that part to speak into somebody's life from direct experience. But what we have is God's love to share with them. Oh, it's just going to remind me of something Jesus said. Yeah. If, if we murder, if we have hate in our hearts, we're, we're murderers in our hearts. So right. even though we might not have committed the act in the flesh, doesn't mean that we're not guilty. Right. It's a great point. Very, very good point. What about single parents? Are they in this group? Elderly. Elderly. What about the elderly? They haven't done anything wrong, and they're not necessarily poor. Man, well, they may be. But they may be, absolutely. Street people and the beggars. Street people and beggars, they're the sort of more obvious ones that jump out at us. I was in Boston recently and realized how many there are. And, and a lot of those people, at least a third to a half of those people, have what? Have mental illness. People with mental illness, not just serious mental illness that puts them on the street, but people who are depressed. They are, they are not up here with, with their wives. And so for, even if it's just for that moment in their lives, they need somebody else to come alongside, not to serve them, but to come alongside them, to be a part of their lives. You don't have to go that far to see them. Right out here in Lawrence, the Canal Street Bridge, they're underneath. Mm -hmm. They're living in there. And uh, it's, you know, it's, you just can't imagine people living like that right here in their own backyard. So one of, the, one of the things that's been sort of a theme here, including from the Bible verses that we read, is seeing. Our eyes need to be open, right? Um, and so as we see, then we can listen to God. You know, Steve brought a song this morning that sums up the entire Christian life. Trust and obey, Right? Why do we need all these messages? All we really need is trust and obey, right? Right from the very beginning, trust and obey. Be strong and courageous, you know? And so, but it's not that simple. When we interact with daily life, we can go through daily life with blinders on whether we want them or not, and we don't see. Sometimes we interact with the poor via our televisions or our radios. We hear something that happened, right? What are, what are some of the things you hear on the radio? What's happening now? Jobs, unemployment. Jobs, unemployment. Murder. Murder. Syria refugees. Syrian, <laughs> Syrian refugees, right? Surely those guys fit in our in our category of disenfranchised. Addicts. Addicts. So that brings a question: Does it matter how they got to be disenfranchised to you when you when you when you are approaching someone? Is it more likely that you are going to go to a a soup kitchen where you say, well, these guys, they've been on the street, they really need some food, I'm going to serve here. And the same day a ministry is going on with, with addicts and, and meeting with them and trying to help them sort out their lives. Is there a reason you choose one over the other? 
I think God brings them to you. I think God winds us up with people. And I think one of the greatest things I've learned dealing with addicts and homeless is to listen and to show them love and consideration and not condemn them and not uh, try to drive religion down their throat. Just listen to them. Yeah, love them. And it freaks them out because they're used to being criticized and abused and, you know, you're an addict, you're homeless. And, and yet when someone just says, you know, how you doing? Can I help you? Uh, what's going on? And just talk. Communicate. Relate to them. And God gives us wisdom to try to um, encourage them and, and, and lift them up. You know, because we were there. I've been there. I've been in addict. I've been in, in, in places. Mm -hmm. And what a great thing God is. He brings our lives involved <coughs> people to us whose lives are similar that we can relate. And it's just a look on their face that you care about. You don't care where they are, how they're dressed, mm -hmm. but they got a needle hanging out of their arm. And I care about you. How are you doing? You know what I mean? It's like just a great feeling. It's a great thing that God uses. It's because Jesus cared for you. Yeah. To, so you can care for others yeah. in the same way. So our lives affect the people that God brings us. Because He doesn't bring us, like He wouldn't bring me a businessman in a suit that's dealing with the stock market. He'll bring me a job. He'll bring me an alcoholic. He'll bring me somebody to the street. Because I've been there. So I can relate to you, and so I can tell you how you can get out of there. I have the answer, because I lived there, and I'm telling you that's how I get out. And we talk about it, and we relate, it's been going on for quite a while, but it's just a, what, a, what an encouraging, exciting thing that God does with us. So I think this is the unique thing about the Christian faith, is that God has chosen us to be the conveyors of Him. To, to what they would call incarnationally, to live out our relationship with Him, who He is, lived out in our lives, right? And so, as we go through our lives, you know, it's funny, the, the Great Commission, we always hear, go into all the world. The correct translation would be, as you're going, as you're living life, as you are doing the things that you do, and people come into your life, you add relationship, as Fred said. You sit down with them. You talk to them. You listen to them. As was said over here, you don't bring in necessarily that you need to change your life right away. But you never forget that. Jesus never let people go away the same way they came in. He accepted them how they came in. And then he said, now go and sin no more. Let me, be, let me change you. Let me show you a better way. And we don't really necessarily hear what happens after all of those stories in the Bible, but we know God's done a great thing in their heart. He's taken them from a place where their physical need was the only thing that consumed their face and their heart to a place where they could be consumed from the heart with God. Any other comments? Otherwise, I want to just finish up with a, some verses from Isaiah. Well, I do have a question. Yeah, please, man. Somehow fit in. Uh, how, as a, as a privileged American Indian, how do you relate to the people at Pemacopter who don't have those privileges? And do you, how do you embrace them as overcome those barriers? Would you repeat the question? So the question is, how, as a privileged American doctor, do I, do I uh, equate or um, somehow... Uh, become equal with 
the Africans that I serve? That's not an easy question. Um, and I can tell you that it's a struggle on a regular basis to not live in a mud hut because we do live in a uh, permanent stone building. Um, and we do have a car, and we do have this, and we do have that. But there is always going to be people that God has given resources. And he's given those people resources for a reason. Those re reasons are to help other people. Mm -hmm. uh, there, before I go further, I just want to mention a resource that has helped me to think about how can I tr deal with uh, people that come to my door every day. How do I deal with uh, all of these people who have so many overwhelming needs? And it's a book called When Helping Hurts. Um, and I would highly suggest that if you don't have it in the library here, that you get it in the library and make it accessible to people. Uh, it's, it's helpful because it helps you go past the relief model of give this and give that, and how do we really empower people um, as well as, uh, as make sure that they're getting what they need. To get back to your question, though, um, it's a difficult balance, and I struggle with it all the time. My wife struggles with it all the time. Um, how do we do it? The best we can do is to go into the village, is to be with the people, is to say, I am willing to get out of the comfortable space I live in and be with you in whatever difficulty you are in, even to be with you in your celebrations. I want to be a part of your life because it's not about what I have and you don't. It's not about what you have and I don't, which is oftentimes, you know, you talk about what are we getting from them. I feel so, so many times that I am more blessed being there than they are blessed having me there. I can offer them certain things, but I have learned about community. I have learned about how people help each other. I have learned about so many things from them. But I think it's getting to where they are and being with them. And also inviting them into the space that you're in to say, hey, you know what? I believe that you are equal to me. I want you to be in my house. I want you to be with my family. Uh, and I want my family to be with you. Uh, that's the best way I can do it, Mike, is just to, to live with them. Um, it's not, yeah, it's not perfect, um, and surely there's struggles along the way. Any others before we close? All right, this is from chapter uh, 58 of Isaiah. <coughs> Difficult when I'm not using my own Bible and I can, you know, and I don't have written down exactly. It's not, it's because I don't want to read the whole thing. Okay, it's from chapter, uh, chapter 58 from 6 to 12. This is after Isaiah, almost the entire book of Isaiah is, how did you get so far away from me? How did you go so far off track? And most of what he's focusing on is, how did you not meet the needs of the least of these? with their material needs and with their spiritual needs. And so Isaiah 58, 6 through 12 says this, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of in injustice, to untie the cords of the, the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see him naked, clothe him. Do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, 
and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer you, and you will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always, and he will satisfy your needs in the sun-scorched land, and will strengthen your frame, and you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild ancient ruins and will raise up age-old foundations, and you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we want to see? We want to see this world restored one person at a time. We want to see lives restored. We want to see communities restored. We want to see societies restored. We want to see the nations restored. And we want to see the kingdom of God. And that's how it will come. Thank you for your attention. Sorry for my Great. lack of preparation. Great. Let me just tell one more story that I thought was just a fabulous way that the, the Kenyan people ministered to me. We were in a village far out, and we were just looking around uh, the area. And outside their kitchen, which is a rounded kind of a hut, there was this, there was a string dangling, and it had uh, kind of like a makeshift plate on it and a covering. And I said, well, what is that? And they said, so we know that people come through in the nighttime, and they may be hungry. And so we take the food that's left over from dinner, and we put it outside a hut on this string, and people know that if they see that, they are welcome to come by and eat the food that's in there. <laughs> so, that's how he wants us to live. Thinking ahead and thinking about today. <laughs>